Okay, welcome to the 670th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. Uh, please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Please be seated and we'll start uh, dinner. I have an announcement about the... Now, some of you may notice that I usually have a picture for everyone to identify who this soldier is. And that was certainly my plan this morning when I took the file with those pictures to my office and I realized about 15 minutes ago that I left that file in my office. So, 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 so pretend, no, start dinner, please start dinner. Yep, yep. So pretend that you have a picture of a Confederate soldier, a Lieutenant Colonel, because the, the picture is so obscure. By the way, Larry Hewitt gave it to me, so please compliment Larry on the obscure picture. You wouldn't recognize the guy from this picture anyway. So I'm going to give you a few clues. And right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, he was a major general in the Confederate Army. He was born in Glasgow, Kentucky in 1823, grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi, he graduated from Center College in Kentucky at age 17, practiced law in Natchez, Mississippi, elected a district attorney at age 22, a unionist. He opposed secession, but followed Mississippi into the Confederacy. He raised the Adams County Cavalry Company and became its captain and led them at Manassas. So it, I'll let that stew for a while. So in October 1861, his company joined the 2nd Mississippi Cavalry, and he was promoted to major. In early 1862, the 2nd Mississippi Cavalry was merged into the Jeff Davis Cavalry Legion, and he was promoted to lieutenant colonel. He fought at Yorktown and Williamsburg. Bruce? You're, you're not eligible. You've won before. And by the way, if you get this, you're the first one to me, and if you attend next month's meeting, it will be on me. He fought at Yorktown and Williamsburg. And now the clue that's going to start helping people, I think. He participated in Jeb Stewart's ride around McClellan's army in June of 1862. Okay, we'll let that settle a while. I, uh, when I got here tonight, I recognized two people that I had seen on History America tours, the, the swans over here, who are guests tonight. And I'd like to call Patricia forward. She's got an announcement to make. Thanks very much, Jerry. I want to tell you about a new book that's been published on a Chicago Civil War regiment, the 90th Illinois. 
It was the second Irish regiment to be formed out of Chicago. It was formed in the fall of 1862. The book was published by the Southern Illinois University Press, and uh, the author is my husband, James Swan. There's an event at the Irish American Heritage Center on Sunday afternoon uh, about the book, and it's at 3 p.m., and everyone is cordially invi invited to come and hear something about the regiment's uh, experience marching and fighting with W.T. Sherman, going through uh, seven Confederate states, and uh, doing all those fun things that Irishmen are known to have done during the Civil War. So uh, on your table, there's some of these postcards from the press and uh, a reminder as to the event on Sunday afternoon. Thank you. Okay, we're good. Roger, would you come forward and make a few announcements about the Kentucky tour? Well, we're all ready for the tour. There's still room for a couple of more. If you're ready to give Ray a check tonight, we could probably still squeeze you in. Uh, Brooks will be happy to know that we're going to be going back to the Campbell House where he had that Southern Brown that we hit uh, way back in 94 when we took the tour through there. But it's going to be a fun time. Uh, it's not too late. Join us. Um, just a little reminder about the 8th Annual Ed Bars Preservation Award. We're collecting for that award, um, and Ed will be announcing the awardees, his choice of um, whatever group or effort deserves this award, and he'll be presenting the award a week from Saturday night when we're all in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and possibly naming uh, Kentucky groups. Perhaps not. You never know what Ed's going to do, but nonetheless, he'll be making that announcement, and it's a great way to honor Ed because he takes great pride in this award. He loves it a great deal. And it's our opportunity to present $1,000 in Ed's name um, to whatever group or effort he uh, so desires. So we're collecting for the award. And if you would like to make a contribution, we'd be glad to accept that. Thank you. By the way, the uh, quiz master's quiz is at each table. so. Please complete it, and he, of course, announces all those who get every question correct. Another announcement is the speaker for the next meeting is Jim Ogden from Chickamauga National Military Park, and he's going to be talking uh, about the rescue at Horseshoe Ridge, which I think is probably one of the most important battlefield incidences of the whole Civil War because my great-grandfather was wounded at Horseshoe Ridge. So it's a very special uh, place for me. Thank you. As you finish up dessert, I'd like to call upon Donna Tui to make announcements about guests and new members. Good evening. I would like to introduce our special guest tonight. Our speaker is Stephen Wise. 
Yeah, I'm going to call off all these names, and, and uh, please stand up. Stephen, you don't have to. We know you're at the guest table. Joyce Brandon, Robert Brandon, Jean Carnes, Salt Creek member, and another Salt Creek member, Jane Muncy. Where are you? James Swan, Patricia Swan, our author and his, his wife. Amy Williams, Emma Williams, Amy Williams, Emma Williams, John Williams, R.T. Williams. The Williams clan is here, I think. Where are they? They might be lecture only. They're lecture only. Oh, okay. <clears throat> All right, thank you very much, and we hope to see you in the next coming year. Now call upon Roger Rudich, our past president, to announce the slate of officers for next year. Thank you, Jerry. And as my uh, last official act as uh, immediate past president and chairman of the nominating committee, I would like to introduce our slate of officers who will be um, nominated, formally nominated next month. Yes. And elected, or there will be an election at the... Uh... Now, now, I think you told me all this stuff when I became president. You, you gave me all these instructions. Yeah. Right? And now you've forgotten it? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're in charge, you know. Yes, but... <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'd like to uh, ask the nominees, or the, the slate of nominees to stand. Please hold your applause. And for the 2009-2010 year, uh, for president, we are nominating, the committee is nominating Tom Trescott. Please, Tom's not here, and Ray is not here. Ray is right. Ray, Ray is here. Uh, and uh, senior vice president, Ray Radovich. Please stand, Ray. First vice president, Bob Stoller. Second Vice President, Brian Sider. Treasurer, Mark Matranga. Assistant Treasurer, Jim Cunningham. Secretary, Donna Tui. Assistant Secretary, John Kosiolko. And Trustees for Terms to Expire 2011, Fred Johansson, Cindy Heckler, David Zucker, and Eric Girardi. And one additional trustee to fill an, une uh, an une or unexpired slot for 2010, uh, Bajorn Skaptison. Your nominees for the next term. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll have elections at the next meeting. And if you want to nominate someone at that meeting, the only rule is that the person who's being nominated must be present. Okay, thank you. All right, why don't we take a 10-minute break and gather back at 7.30 for the, the program.
All right, let's start uh, getting to our seats. It's getting close to 7.30. As Rob is getting, uh, Rob Girardi back there is getting ready to bring up the books for the book raffle. Something very special happened tonight that uh, made Rob very proud. He said for the first time, one of our speakers actually bought one of his books. <laughs> right. So Rob is uh, strutting up here, a little prouder than usual maybe. <laughs> okay, book raffle. Here you go. I always get it backwards. <laughs> All right. Uh, hold them. All right, don't forget we have the note cards for sale back here. Uh, all that goes to Battlefield Preservation and Gail Pewitt's book on the New Albans Raid. And he's donating half of the proceeds of that to Battlefield Preservation. Could we get our young man up here, the, the only honest person in the room to... Uh, <laughs> Getting old. One eight six oh five two seven. time that's happened <laughs> but so so much for the incorruptibility of youth <laughs> oh good lord the committee on the conduct of the raffle will be meeting immediately 1860501 sit down <laughs> 0501 <laughs> they got it. <laughs> Somebody knew. <laughs> what are, 0501. <laughs> no, let our speaker draw one. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> One eight six O three eight four. O three eight four. Take a picture of yourself getting the book. <laughs> One eight six O three six four. Zero three six four. 
take the last one. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> 186. This isn't supposed to be so much fun. 0455. Don't forget we have the book sale uh, and the uh, note cards back there. Thus far tonight, we've raised $182. I got it. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for. We call upon our Inspector General, the Quiz Master, David Zucker. Hold the applause, hold the applause. <laughs> I listened just now to your heartwarming reception and I'm reminded of a quote that Harry S. Truman once made that I've quoted before this august group before. No matter what you do in this world, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who won't like it. <laughs> um, with regard to tonight's quiz, Stephen Wise on Gate of Hell, the 1863 campaign for Battery Wagner in Charleston. Name the officer in command at Fort Sumter when it surrendered. That was Robert Anderson. Name the officer in command of the opposing Confederate forces, Pierre Gustave Touton Beauregard. Name the commander of the Confederate military department that included Charleston. Much to my surprise, I didn't know this until I read Stephen's book, Robert E. Lee. Who succeeded the above as department commander when General Lee went on to Richmond, he was replaced by John C. Pemberton. Name the Union General who commanded the Department of the South, Quincy Gilmore. We had lots of 100s, I'm happy to say. El Marco, Jefferson Davis. <laughs> Couldn't you come up with a better alias than that? <laughs> Michael, we Michael Weeks, Publius. White Sox Bruce. Is there any mystery as to who that was? <laughs> ben Dover. <laughs> Tiger Hawk. Nathaniel Lyon. I thought he was dead. <laughs> the non-Catholic Larry. <laughs> Are you sure that that shouldn't be like heathen Larry or pagan Larry? <laughs> Well, that's not what you put on here. <laughs> Another one from Ben Dover. Only one qu quiz submission per person, folks. Gene. Uh, Karen. Karen, thank you. Oh, someone put their name on it? All right. <laughs> <laughs> this looks like Julius. Yeah, I think that's Julius. Kurt, U.S. Grant and staff. 
Thank you, General. Uh, Don Sender, Virginia Clay, Rick Branham, Bensonville John, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, get out of here, you traitor, Pat Swan, and R.T. Williams. You know, that kid has won, what, two books now? And he got 100 on the quiz? You're batting 1,000, kid. Welcome. Thank you, David. And now, tonight's uh, speaker, Steve Wise. Somebody leave their glasses. <laughs> Can you see the uh, slideshow all right, or are you going to need the lights down a little bit? I don't. Okay. Uh, as well, no, I'm going to be talking to you about the campaign for Morris Island and Battery Wagner tonight. And I always like to sort of start with what it looks like today. Uh, this is a lighthouse uh, built after the Civil War to replace the one that was destroyed during the war. At one time, this sat in the middle of the island, very close to the southern tip where Confederate batteries were located. The campaign itself, of course, gained a great deal of publicity with the movie Glory, but the story of Battery Wagner and Morris Island is much more than just the attack and this little single event that Hollywood made so famous. Uh, the Battle of Morris Island is one of the most intense and interesting battles, I think, of the Civil War. A lot of fascinating personalities, modern military practices, extensive use of black troops, combined Army-Navy operations, ironclad warships, long-range artillery bombardments, and of course you always have sort of the fate of the common soldier mixed in. Uh, let's see, okay, good, there we go. That's my fancy slide. Uh, let's go back one. There we go. This is the area I'm going to be primarily talking about, Charleston Harbor. You can see Charleston located right here. Uh, Fort Sumter obviously will be a very important part of this campaign. And then this is Morris Island right along here. Uh, this is Cummings Point, uh, the closest piece of land to Fort Sumter. And then you can see at the time of the Civil War, the main ship channel came in and moved along Morris Island, came up here, and then passed into Charleston Harbor between Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie. Today, Morris Island is the last undeveloped barrier island near Charleston. The island itself has a very long history. As early as 1673, there had been some sort of lighthouse on Morris Island. It was occupied by the British uh, during the American Revolution. It was used for a while as a hospital site during the Revolution. It will be nicknamed Coffin Island. Uh, before the war, the island was the site of Charleston Lighthouse. This is the lighthouse that was there right at the start of the war. This is what will guide vessels into the main ship channel. Uh, this lighthouse itself will be blown up by the Confederates early in the war. They blew up all the lighthouses along the southeastern coast in order to keep them from being used as landmarks by the blockading squadrons. What will make, again, Morris Island so important in the Civil War will be its proximity to Fort Sumter. Uh, the northern tip of the island, known as Cummings Point, is about a half mile from Fort Sumter. 
Now, obviously, Fort Sumter is the primary defender of Charleston Harbor, guards the entrance. And what makes Fort Sumter, well, there's two things that make Fort Sumter so important in this campaign. One are the guns that are mounted on the top tier or the barbette of the fort. This is where you would place the heaviest cannons. They could fire down on the decks of vessels as they came into Charleston Harbor. Fort Sumter, I'm sure as Rick Hatcher told you, is about 50, 60 feet high. And these are the most effective cannons defending Charleston Harbor. Now, when it was constructed, Fort Sumter was considered to be impregnable, that these brick walls could really only be chipped by the round balls fired by the cannons up to the time of the Civil War. In fact, the engineers were so confident when they built Fort Sumter uh, that it was impregnable, they placed the gorge wall, and this is the wall that has the uh, barracks and such on it. This is the thinnest of all the walls. This is the wall that faces Cummings Point. Of course, one thing they sort of thought about was, well, it's not going to be attacked by the locals, obviously, so we can place the weakest wall nearest the closest point of land. Well, of course, they were wrong. In December of 1860, South Carolina will secede from the Union, and the federal garrison at Fort Moultrie will flee to Fort Sumter for protection. The men in Fort Sumter will watch as the Confederates begin building batteries uh, to bombard the fort. Uh, the place chosen to place the largest and best guns of the Confederacy will be on Cummings Point. Among the guns mounted in Cummings Point was this 3.5-inch Blakely rifle, the only rifled gun used in the bombardment of Fort Sumter. Uh, this little gun, its projectiles, bullet-like projectiles, could drill almost a foot into that gorge wall. It was a bit of foreshadowing of things to come. After Sumter was captured, the Confederates began to realign their defenses. Cannon that had once pointed at Fort Sumter will be shifted to guard the main ship channel. They will not place batteries on Morris Island. Uh, initially, there were no guns on Morris Island. They will abandon the batteries on Morris Island, take the cannon away, mount them elsewhere. Now, this is, I wish Pat Brennan was here, but he apologized to me earlier today that he couldn't come because he always corrects me on some of these things. Uh, there are four ways to attack Charleston. One is to come right into the harbor with your fleet, and of course you have to take on Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie to do that. You can land north of Charleston in Bulls Bay and then try to march overland, seize Mount Pleasant, and then you're on the interior of the harbor and you've bypassed the harbor forts. You can try to come up the Stono River which is how the British captured Charleston during the American Revolution. Uh, you can land on James Island, move inland, and capture Fort Johnson, again turning the outer harbor defenses, or you can go farther up and land and come over and come on Charleston from the landward side or from the western side. Or as Pat always likes to point out, as his hero Isaac Stevens wanted to do, you can move inland and move along the Charleston and Savannah Railroad uh, to reach Charleston as well. The to protect the harbor, the Confederates will increase their defenses. Uh, this is actually Fort Moultrie. Fort Moultrie will be turned into an earthen fortification quite earlier in the war. Uh, they also will set up a line of obstructions between Fort Sumter and Sullivan's Island. Initially, this line of instructions would be a rope barrier, a log barrier. Uh, then as time goes on, the Confederates will begin placing floating explosive devices, known as torpedoes, among that barrier, sometimes referred to as a boom. The 
city itself will have a growing naval squadron of ironclads to help protect the harbor as well. Guarding Charleston's back door, you might say the Stono River, guarding the entrance to the Stono River, uh, will be fortifications on Coles Island, located right here. Well, early on, and as Lee, when Lee was the commander of this area, as Lee learned the hard way, uh, they the Confederates discovered that the Federals could come and isolate these fortifications on these islands, cut them off, you lose the cannons, you lose the garrison. So under Robert E. Lee, they began a movement to abandon these isolated fortifications. And it will be Lee's successor, again on your quiz, John C. Pemberton, who will direct the abandonment of Coles Island. Now Pemberton is planning to build fortifications up here on John's Island, again to stop forces from coming along the Stono River. Uh, the problem was the Federals are going to learn about this quite quickly when Robert Smalls, a slave, part of a slave crew on board the steamship planter, uh, Smalls, the slave crew uh, on, the, on the planter had been carrying artillery and other equipment from Coles Island back into Charleston Harbor. Well, Smalls is going to lead the other slaves. They're going to take their families one night, place them on board the planter, take the planter out of Charleston Harbor, and turn her over to the blockading Union squadron. And not only is this a tremendous event that elevates Smalls to sort of a national hero, Smalls also brings with him the information that the Confederates have evacuated Coles Island, and it's open now for U.S. warships to come into the Stono River. And in the summer, and late spring, early summer of 1862, the Federals will send in troops and they will land on James Island and be in a position to possibly break through the Confederate defense lines, capture Fort Johnson, and again, turn those Fort Sumter, turn Fort Sumter and Moultrie, the main defenders of Charleston Harbor. Well, in June of 1862, they will launch an attack against the Confederate defenses at Secessionville and be defeated. Within a month, the Federal Army will withdraw from James Island, but the Navy will keep up a presence in the Stono River. But this sort of showed that the Army by itself really couldn't overrun these earthen defenses that were guarding Charleston. After they had been turned back, the Confederates are going to begin building defenses on Morris Island. Uh, when they were on Coles Island, which would have been down in here, uh, they didn't really worry about Morris Island, but with, Morris, with Coles Island now evacuated, they begin building defenses on Morris Island. And they have set up a number of different works. One is on Lighthouse Inlet. This is where the lighthouse would have been located. They have a number of detached batteries right in here. They build a battery at the narrowest part of the island. Initially, this was called the Neck Battery. And then they built what's called Battery Greg at Cummings Point. Now, this they, Battery Greg would fire down the ship channel, is what Battery Greg would do. The, they also planned other works to sort of protect Morris Island. They were going to bring the old famous floating battery that had fired on Fort Sumter, place it over here in the marsh so its guns could sort of cover the approaches to Battery Wagner. They were going to occupy Black Island and have guns here that could cover Lighthouse Inlet. These works were never finished uh, before the campaign started. The Neck Battery will be renamed on November 4, 1862 for Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Wagner. 
Wagner had been a veteran of Secessionville, an officer in the 1st South Carolina Artillery. Uh, he was killed July 17, 1862, uh, when a cannon exploded during gunnery practice at Fort Moultrie. Now, the overall commander, again on your quiz, is going to be General Beauregard, considered by many to be the South's best engineering officer. Working under Beauregard was Brigadier General Rosling Sabine Ripley. Uh, he commanded the Charleston District. He was, a char he was a native of Ohio, but he had married into the Charleston Middleton family, so he will fight for the South. Beauregard and Ripley's defenses will be tested in April of 1863 when a squadron of federal ironclads, including a number of the turreted monitors, tried to force their way into Charleston Harbor. Uh, the ironclads will be turned back by really two things. Uh, one will be those obstructions. I, uh, monitors are uh, very dangerous ships to be in. Should you hit a torpedo, they will flip over and sink in about a minute. So when they approached the obstructions, they had a boom on front of one of the monitors that it set off an explosion. They realized there were torpedoes in the obstructions. They turned back. They tried to bombard Fort Sumter. The cannons on the top tier of Fort Sumter fire down on the decks of these vessels, causing a great deal of damage, and the ironclads are turned back. The Federals realized next time they go after Charleston, it's going to have to be a combined operation. The Army failed to Secessionville. The Navy now failed in April in their attempt to take, the, take Charleston. What they're going to do is establish uh, a base. While the ironclads were being defeated by the Confederate forts, the Federals will land some troops on Folly Island, the island just south of Morris Island, and establish a fortified base. Though the capture was bloodless, the soldiers did not think very highly of their new home. It was covered by sand dunes laced with dense pine and palmetto growths. The island was described by a member of the 7th New Hampshire as one of the most dreary and worthless collections of sand hills to be found along the coast. Another wrote, Folly Island is the name of the spot we inhabit, so called probably because, as someone expressed it, some fool landed here a long time ago. He didn't stay long. The garrison spent its time building defenses on the southern half of the island. Other than this and some picket duty, the men had very little to do, causing again another office, uh, soldier to remark, inactivity would drive a hermit to suicidal halter with sheer despair. They did establish a fairly comfortable base. By the way, these, are four, these last two photographs are the 39th Illinois uh, that was stationed and will be part of this campaign. Uh, there were some problems. Uh, one of their commanding officers, uh, Colonel Dandy of the 100th New York, would get drunk and run through their picket lines. Uh, the men knew who it was. They wouldn't fire on him, but then Dandy the next morning would arrest them for not firing on him. <laughs> they enjoyed fishing, swimming, and drinking, much like people do on Folly Beach today. Uh, they also went down to Lighthouse Inlet, and they would swim across the inlet, they would swap newspapers, tobacco, and coffee with the Confederates on the other side on Morris Island. So while the men on Morris Island and Folly Island were avoiding open combat, the northern leaders in Washington were making new plans to attack Charleston. Now Charleston's no ordinary objective. It's the Confederacy's second largest city, depending upon how you want to count. It was a thriving commercial seaport. It was the South's main blockade running port. Until the summer of 1863, the South's all-important lifeline to Europe flowed through Charleston. 
The city contained a government arsenal, numerous industrial plants that provided finished goods for the South's military. It was home to a growing naval squadron of ironclad rams. And once taken, Charleston could be used as a point to launch attacks against Columbia and Augusta, Georgia. Northern opinion, spurred on by newspapers, kept up a constant clamor for Charleston's capture. The city was considered by some to be symbolically more important than Richmond. Union leaders remembered the embarrassment of not being able to relieve Fort Sumter, were eager to redeem themselves. President Lincoln saw the capture of Charleston as a needed moral, political, and symbolic victory for his party and cause. Uh, one naval officer commented, I think the nation as well as the department has set its heart upon the fall of that city. I think justice demands it at the hands of fate. The new attack in 1863 is going to combine the Army and the Navy. They're going to go from their base here on Folly Island. They're down on primarily this part of the island. They are going to launch an attack across Lighthouse Inlet to overrun Morris Island under the cover of ironclads uh, firing to support this attack. Come down, overrun Battery Wagner, capture Battery Gregg, place some of the heaviest artillery used in the war on Cummings Point, bombard Fort Sumter into submission, capture Fort Sumter, remove the obstructions and the torpedoes, and this will allow the ironclads to enter the harbor and capture the city. For the attack, Getting with your quiz, they'll bring down some new commanding officer, Quincy A. Gilmore, a, a native of Lorraine City, Ohio, considered to be one of the best artillerists and engineers in the Union Army. He'll come to Hilton Head in May of 1863, quickly move his headquarters up to Folly Island to prepare for the attack. He'll be joined by a new naval commander, Rear Admiral John Dahlgren. Like Gilmore, Dahlgren was considered the nation's uh, top na naval ordnance officer being responsible for the Dahlgren gun, that's what he's leaning up against here in this photograph, which made the U.S. Navy one of the best armed forces in the world. Though one contemporary described Dahlgren as resembling more a preacher than a naval officer, he was a very diligent, brave man. While Dahlgren readied his vessels, Gilmore took his men from their comfortable works at the southern end of Folly Island and began building mass batteries across from the Confederate works on Morris Island. Uh, these are the batteries right here that they are going to construct. Some of them are still there today, though it's hard to distinguish them between them and the sand dunes. Uh, that's all the work is done at night. Uh, the only orders were given by whistles. They actually would blow whistles to tell the soldiers what to do and how to do it. Uh, they weren't allowed to speak. The men weren't even allowed to curse the mosquitoes and the sand fleas that were biting them. For the attack, Gilmore will bring together four brigades of infantry, a formidable array of artillery, in all, he had about 11,000 infantrymen, 350 artillerymen, 400 engineers, and 50 pieces of artillery. He also had something sort of unique to Civil War armies, at least at this time. He had three black regiments among his force. There was the 1st uh, South Carolina and the 2nd South Carolina. These are units raised from former slaves along the southeastern coast. And uh, he will have the 54th Massachusetts, a unit formed outside of Boston, primarily of northern blacks. Its commander was the 25-year-old Robert Gould Shaw. The regiment uh, was one of the finest regiments raised uh, by the uh, state of Massachusetts. It was declared to be the most physically fit, best armed, and equipped unit to come out of that state. The regiment also 
had a purpose to prove that black men could and would fight in this war. And they were being watched very carefully by not only their sponsors, but by the administration and newspapermen and others. Opposing the Federal troops were about 7,000 Confederates scattered around the Charleston area, all from South Carolina. Uh, there were a number four to 6,000 more men uh, within easy reach of Charleston could be rushed there by railroad from Georgia, North Carolina, and other points within South Carolina. The Confederates knew an assault was coming, but they were not sure exactly where it was going to be headed. They looked at Morris Island, but they placed most of their men on James Island. To keep the Confederates guessing, Gilmore is going to plan two diversions, Damascus assault on Morris Island. Uh, the 1st South Carolina, the Black Regiment, was to work its way up the Edistal River to Jacksonboro and try to break the railroad line there. Uh, they get it to about here and their boats run aground, they don't make it. A brigade of soldiers under General Alfred Terry will land on James Island. The diversions started on July 9th. Uh, the force that lands on James Island under General Terry will engage the Confederates. Uh, this will be the first uh, skirmish that the 54th Massachusetts will be part of. And then on July 16th, the men on James Island, Terry's brigade, will be pulled off of James Island and sent to Morris Island. Now, while the two diversions were being carried out, Gilmore prepared to land his men on Morris Island. Shortly after midnight on the morning of July 10th, some 2,500 men under the command of Brigadier General George Strong will be placed in boats in the Folly River and rowed to Lighthouse Inlet where they awaited the bombardment. At dawn, the Union batteries were unmasked and opened fire. A short time later, Dahlgren will lead a squadron of ironclads into action, adding their massive shells to the bombardment. The Confederate commander, Colonel Robert Graham, were ready as men. Oops. I've lost Robert here. Okay. Well, sorry you couldn't see Colonel Graham. But Colonel Graham ordered his men to their positions, which will be here at these detached batteries and then in uh, entrenchments here. The Federal boats will be coming down the Lighthouse Creek. Most of them will land right here. One unit will come down and outflank the Confederates. The Confederates, though, when they did spy the Federals, well, whatever has happened. Okay. Well, I apologize for this. I don't know what's what's happening here. Uh, the go ahead and hit me to the next one. Yeah, that's Colonel Taylor there. Yes, well nourished, as somebody once said. Okay. All right. Well, it's going backward. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Okay. Now we have. The Federals have been spotted by Colonel Graham and his men, and they began lobbing shells for the advancing Federal boats. And it just causes a little anxiety among the Federals who felt helpless to answer the Confederate shells. One soldier remarked, he did not mind being killed or drowned. It was the possibility of both that bothered him. <laughs> As he was wedged in so tight, he could neither pray, fight, nor swear. The Federals pushed on through the Confederate fire and landed on Morris Island. Strong, anxious to join the fray, leaped out of his boat before it landed and disappeared under the water, leaving only his hat floating on the waves. But he soon surfaced, reached the shore, stripped off his waterlogged boots and began directing the attack. Outgunned, outflanked, the Confederates were forced to retreat, fleeing two miles down the beach to Battery Wagner. The Northerners followed, but as they neared Wagner, a flurry of grape shot 
drove them back and stopped them, and Gilmore called off the attack. It had been a long, hot day, temperatures well over 90 degrees. Uh, next day, Gilmore felt a quick rush could take Wagner. But Wagner is a little different from the works that he'd already overrun. It's a strong, well-constructed position. Uh, it has a huge bomb proof that over a thousand men could be down inside of. Has a number of guns on its land front. It has large seacoast guns that can duel with the monitors. And right in front out here, the salt marsh cuts in, so there's only about a 40-yard opening that troops can come through to actually attack the battery. It's a very formidable, very formidable position. The next morning, July 11th, before dawn, General Strong will form his brigade about 500 yards from Wagner. Strong's brigade numbered about 1,200 men. They expect an easy victory, but inside Wagner were 1,800 men. With no artillery bombardment, the Federals went in. Only one regiment will reach uh, Wagner's moat and wall. The rest will be turned back by the intense fire of the battery's garrison. In a very short time, the Federals will retreat. They will lose over 300 men, one-fourth or 25% of their strength. The Confederates lose 12 men. General Strong was the first to meet the survivors. With tears in his eyes, he kept repeating, my fault, my fault. The repulse was a rude shock to the Northerners. Realizing that more preparation was needed, Gilmore constructed breaching batteries to soften up Wagner before the next attack. And these breaching batteries are up in here, right over in here. The uh, four breaching batteries will mount 40 siege guns. And now these are all photographs taken after the campaign, but these are all the actual batteries and such I'll be showing you. In the meantime, Confederates gave Wagner a new garrison, a new commander, Brigadier General William Booth Tolliver. Confederate reaction to the Union lodgment on Morris Island was one of, not of despair, but of dedication to the campaign ahead. Charleston newspapers called for immediate counterattack. They referred to the Yankees as Vandals and Philistines. They referred to Gilmore as a new Xerxes. The Daily Courier declared that should Charleston fall, life will no longer be worth living. President Davis viewed the landing as a serious act. He realized that the South could ill afford to lose Charleston. Besides its value as a blockade running port, the South had to retain the city as a rallying cry, a symbol for the South. They knew they had already lost Vicksburg and reports from Gettysburg were not that good. On the morning of July 18th, the bombardment began. The land batteries were joined by the fleet, and for hours the Union guns pounded Wagner with over 9,000 shells. At its height, there were 27 shells per minute coming into Wagner. But the majority of Wagner's garrison will be safely tucked away inside the battery's bomb proofs. The work will be badly misshapen, but there'll be very little damage done to the battery. Stationed outside the bomb proof was the locally raised Charleston Battalion. Men from this unit will be constantly dodging death as shells exploded throughout the battery. To give a steadying example, Major David Ramsey of the Charleston Battalion sat in a chair behind Wagner's parapet, calmly reading a newspaper. Ramsey seemed oblivious to the passing shells, and when necessary, he would leave his seat, help carry some wounded into the bomb proof, dust himself off, and go back to his reading. Still, the Gilmore and the majority of his men thought that Wagner was being ripped apart. As one northern, uh, northern described the scene as the grandest and most fearful storms ever rained upon a battery on this continent. At one point, the Confederate flag was shot away, and a Confederate soldier, an officer by the name of Rob Barnwell, stood on the parapet holding up a, a battle flag 
until they replace the garrison flag. Toward evening, Gilmore is going to draw up 9,000 men for the attack. He was confident that only about one-third of these, this number would be used. One Federal thought there was only 300 men in the fort and felt the attack would be quick and easy. In reality, less than 30 men had been injured, leaving over 1,600 to resist the Union attack. The commander of the division was Major General Truman Seymour, who had been part of Sumter's garrison in April of 1861. The lead brigade was again led by the aggressive George Strong. Commander of the regiment to spearhead the attack will be Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. At the start of the campaign, Shaw's regiment was stationed down by Buford on St. Helena Island with Strong's brigade. Shaw and Strong, both from Massachusetts, uh, probably knew each other before the war met and became close friends on St. Helena Island, and Strong promised Shaw that should the occasion arise, he would ask for Shaw's regiment to be part of his brigade. And now you might say Strong is going to make good on this promise, and Shaw's regiment will be transferred from Terry's brigade over to Strong's brigade. Shaw was very happy with this, though he did have a premonition that he would not survive this battle. But Gilmore and the majority of his officers believed that the fort was re uh, reduced, helpless, and its garrison spirit broken. Gilmore expected an easy victory. Seymour and Strong expected some resistance, but not much. Only Colonel Haldeman Putnam, the commander of the 2nd Brigade, disagreed. Putnam, a West Point graduate and a former engineer, thought the Union soldiers were going into Wagner like a flock of sheep. But his objections will be overruled. Just before the attack, Putman was heard to say that Seymour is a devil of a fellow for Dash. At dusk, Seymour readied his division. The 54th took its position in the lead. The 54th was the strongest regiment in the Union force. The other regiments had large sick rolls, reducing their effective, uh, effective strength by about 30 to 40 percent. In the 1st Brigade, only the 54th, with its 650 men, was large enough to be drawn up in two lines, two men deep, with one wing of five companies in the rear. The following regiments formed in either columns or in line by regiment. For the attack, Shaw instructed his 2nd Command, Lieutenant Colonel Hollowell, to take the state flag and direct the 2nd Battalion, while Shaw was going to lead the 1st Battalion. It was to be a simple bayonet rush at night. No plans of the battery had been given to the officers. No were they supplied with any tools to cut away the obstructions. No artillerymen to work captured guns. No engineers to lead the way, just the bayonet. The vision waited in the growing darkness when the law was finally broken when General Strong appeared bounded in full uniform in front of the regiment. The men remained on the ground and while Strong addressed them. Strong told them that he too was a Massachusetts man and told them that he, that he knew they would uphold the state's honor. He then asked if there was anyone who thought he had been unable to sleep in the fort that night, and a chorus of no's will answer his question. He then called the color bearer forward. This day the flag was carried by Sergeant John Wall, a former student of Oberlin, Ohio. Strong asked who would pick up the flag if the color sergeant fell, and many answered yes that they would, and then Shaw stepped forward, removed his cigar, and said, I will, to which the regiment responded with cheers. Finally, Strong ordered the men to keep their files and ranks, and as one veteran recalled, to go in and bayonet every mother's son of them. 
At 7.45, the order was given to advance. Shaw walked to the front and center of the 54th, called it to attention, and gave his final orders. Move in quick time until within 100 yards of the fort, then double quick and charge. He paused and then gave the order forward. The men moved out into darkness. As they went forward, Wagner remained silent. Uh, the regiment marching in its double lines. Uh, and the men on the extreme right were forced out into the ocean as they come through the defile. When they reach right about here, about 40 yards from the fort, Battery Wagner will open fire. An observer watching from the signal tower on Folly Island said the work became a continuous streak of fire. Stunned and momentarily disorganized, the 54th will continue on toward the center of the battery. Great numbers of men will fall before reaching the ditch. The color bearer went down and national standard was received by Sergeant William Carney. Shaw led the remaining soldiers down into the moat through one foot of water and up to the crest of the parapet. For a moment, the men struggled to gain the gun chambers with Shaw calling his men to go forward. Then bullets will rip through his body and he'll collapse onto the wall. So far, the 54th used only its bayonets. Now having been forced back into the ditch, the remaining officers open with their revolvers. The men cap their muskets and, and rifles and begin firing at the Confederates. Some of the Confederates, seemingly outraged that there are black soldiers in their front, leap up onto the wall and come over the wall to come to grips with the black soldiers. By now, Sergeant Carney will reach Wagner and join the regiment survivors as they try to scale the wall again. But soon they are again forced back onto the embankment where Carney plants the colors and, though wounded, kept up the fight. The men of the 54th clung to the parapet waiting for help, but to them it seemed that none came, and eventually orders were passed by the remaining officers for a retreat. Though they ran for Battery Wagner, the majority of the regiment survivors reformed and remained on the field. They will be the only regiment to reform that night. Among the last to reach a new position was Sergeant Carney. Though wounded four times, he still retained the national colors. And for his actions, he will receive the Medal of Honor. The 54th had not hit Wagner alone. In the darkness, uh, the following regiment struck the seaward salient. Uh, this area right here, the two regiments right behind the 54th go into the sea seaward salient. Uh, it was here where a shell-shocked North Carolina regiment refused to come out of the bomb-proof. Union soldiers from the 6th Connecticut and the 48th New York charge into Wagner, but after a fierce struggle, they will be forced back. Soldiers of the 6th Connecticut had to pull this flag from underneath the bodies of four of their comrades. Behind them came three more regiments led by General Strong against Wagner's center where the 54th had hit. But like the black soldiers before them, they're not going to be able to stay. They'll be forced back and Strong will be mortally wounded. Then a pause will occur before the second brigade comes forward and no one knows quite why. Uh, Seymour, as soon as he saw the 54th up on the walls of Wagner, ordered Putnam to go forward, but Putnam did not go forward right away. We don't know why he did not. Seymour repeats the command, and now Putnam Brigades comes up the beach, and they drive right into that seaward salient. They are going to get inside there. They're going to get on top of the bomb-proof, which is almost like a little tiny fort inside Battery Wagner. 
Immediately, uh, Tolliver will move to seal off this breakthrough. The shell-shocked North Carolina regiment will emerge from the bomb-proof and was used in a counterattack. It's a very fierce fighting on both sides, very dark, very confused. The Federals are going to try to come over the top of the bomb-proof and get down inside of Wagner. The Southerners will fire into their own men, at one point killing Captain Ramsey, the man who had been reading the newspaper during the bombardment. The Federals, though, could not take advantage of their situation. Packed in tight, officers could not keep their men organized. Putnam tries to lead them forward into the interior of Wagner, and he is shot and killed. Finally, the men in the salient realize that they were in danger of being cut off and trapped. They will retreat. Those who will remain uh, will be cut off and captured when Brigadier General Johnson Haygood brings the 32nd Georgia's reinforcements come in, they come in and around Wagner and cut off the men that stay in the salient. In the end, the Northerners wreck two brigades on Wagner before Seymour goes down with a severe wound and Gilmore wisely calls off the attack. Confederate losses, about 220 men of 1,600 inside the battery. The Federals, out of 5,000 who go into action, will lose 1,500 men, 246 of them killed. The 54th, which left no doubt that blacks could and would fight, will lose 40% of its men, 272 of the 650 that went in the battle. The 6th Connecticut suffered 25% casualties. The 48th New York lost 50% of its men and returned with only two of its 16 officers. The 7th New Hampshire lost 18 officers. The Union Division commander was wounded, both brigade commanders were killed or mortally wounded, and every regimental commander except one will be killed or wounded. The next morning, the battlefield was turned over to doctors and nurses, among them Clara Barton, who will never forget her experiences on that small sandy island, and 20 years later, uh, use uh, in her speeches comments about what occurred on Morris Island and the attack on Battery Wagner. After the battle, both sides agreed to a truce to care for the wounded and bury the dead. Confederate officers who had been killed were taken to Charleston. Enlisted men, Confederate enlisted men were buried behind the battery. The majority of the Federals were buried in mass graves in front of Wagner, including Shaw and Putnam. Colonel Shaw will be purposely buried with about 20 of his soldiers. And though Putnam's body will be eventually returned, Shaw's body will not. A few days later, an official prisoner exchange took place on ships off of Morris Island. At this time, northern officials tried to find the, fates, uh, the fate of the captured black soldiers and some of the officers of the 54th, but the Confederates would not answer any of these questions. It's a sensitive issue because when the North began outfitting their black regiments, the Confederacy responded with General Order Number 60 which stated that any former slaves captured would be returned to servitude, and any freedmen or whites taken would be turned over to the state where captured for trial for inciting a slave insurrection. Uh, the usual penalty for this would be death. Until Battery Wagner, this act was untested. Now the South had men to prosecute, and the North watched carefully in case retaliation became necessary. Lincoln had decreed that for every African-American soldier sent back into slavery, a Confederate soldier would be put at hard labor, and for every Northern soldier executed, a Southern soldier would be shot. And Gilmore had saved some of his prisoners from the July 10th attack, kept them back in Beaufort, South Carolina, in the jail in Beaufort, in case he needed them uh, for retaliation purposes. Placed in the Charleston jail were 73 black prisoners from the 54th Massachusetts. At first, General Beauregard wanted to avoid the issue, 
but soon the governor of South Carolina, Milledge Bonham, demanded that the prisoners be turned over to the state, and Beauregard was ordered by the Confederate Secretary of War, James Seddon, to turn these men over to the state. They will choose four of the prisoners and place them on trial in the Charleston Police Court. They were defended by Nelson Mitchell, a very prominent Charleston attorney. The prosecutor was Isaac Hain, the state attorney general. The trial will open on September 8, 1863, and Mitchell will argue that the men, though they had been born slaves, they were now legitimate soldiers of the United States protected by the rules of war, and as such, state law did not apply to the prisoners. After a three-day trial, the court agreed with Mitchell and ruled that it had no jurisdiction. The men will be recommitted to the Charleston jail and returned to Confederate control. Though problems over prisoner exchange will remain, the results of the legal proceedings ended the question that Secretary of War James Seddon had said was fraught with present difficulty and danger. The men will be kept in the Charleston jail until 1864 when they'll be transferred to the prisoner of war camp at Florence, South Carolina. Now, while the fate of the black prisoners were being decided in Charleston, the Federals on Morris Island be prepared to carry on. Gilmore decided to open up siege operations against uh, Battery Wagner, start digging the zigzag trenches through the beach on Morris Island toward the Confederate position. Working mostly at night, fatigue parties made up of both black and white soldiers constructed a trench line through the shifting sand. As they neared Wagner, the men began using a sap roller, a one-ton wooden barrel filled with sand that was pushed forward inches at a time while the men behind would throw up uh, a new trench line as they would cut back and forth along the, again, through the sands of Morris Island. Slow, exhausting, grueling work. It's going to take them nearly two months to reach Battery Wagner. While the siege lines were started, General Gilmore, denied access to Cummings Point by Wagner's tenacious defenders, decided to alter his plan. He begins building his breaching batteries to bombard Fort Sumter in the middle of Morris Island. He thought his cannon would be powerful enough to destroy Sumter from a distance of over two miles. Siege batteries were built and given some of the heaviest ordnance ever used in the Civil War. Seacoast artillery, some weighing 26,000 pounds, took a whole regiment to pull some of these cannons through uh, the sand and to their batteries on Morris Island. Morris Island was becoming a very mechanized area for the north. Uh, shovel and picks were replacing the musket. To support the Union batteries and siege work, a massive ordnance and supply installation was established on Morris Island near Lighthouse Inlet. Lumber mills, steam-operated crane, even plants to convert salt water to fresh water was located there. Work on the Union lines was supervised by a number of engineer officers. Some were young graduates of West Point. Others, like Edward Serrell, were volunteers. Serrell was a well-known pre-war civil engineer. Confederates had excellent officers, including Colonel David B. Harris, the department's chief engineer who visited Wagner many times during the siege. Also uh, serving with the Confederates was the Cuban-born Ambrosio Gonzalez, a Cuban revolutionary and married into the Elliott family, was serving as the department's chief of ordnance. The Confederates realized it was only a matter of time before the federal siege lines reached Battery Wagner. Uh, in the meantime, they were going to strengthen Fort Sumter. They're going to strengthen their batteries on Sullivan's Island. They began removing cannons from Fort Sumter, putting sandbags into Fort Sumter. They had this sort of quandary 
they realized that their best guns needed to be mounted on top of Fort Sumter. They also realized it was possible Fort Sumter was going to get blown to bits. So they left some of the guns, removed some of the guns, kind of sort of split what might happen here. They needed time, and it's going to be Wagner that's buying them time to rework their defenses of the harbor. But as the Confederacy's chief engineer who came down to help out as well, Jeremy Gilmore, sort of correctly summed up the situation when he said, as long as the contest is one of work and shooting at long range, no people can beat the infernal Yankees. But Wagner could not stop the destruction of Fort Sumter. By mid-August, the Union breaching batteries were finished and Gilmore called on the Navy for additional help. On August 17th, the bombardment of Sumter was open, firing for over a week, uh, for all, actually firing for about two weeks, but in less than 10 days, Fort Sumter will be destroyed as an artillery position. During the bombardment, shots came fast at Sumter. Timbers caved in and arches crumbled. Bricks were smashed into powder and sandbags blown apart. One by one, the barbette guns were dismounted, so by the end of the bombardment, only one gun was still operable in the fort. Its Buford-born commander, Colonel Alfred Rett, plaintively told a fellow officer, they have ruined my beautiful fort. But Rett and his command had little time for melancholy. To survive, every effort had to be made to repair and renovate the fortification. The garrison soon discovered that the rubble formed by the destroyed walls and barracks could be covered with sand and transformed into a new and stronger work. At night, they would come out and rework the fort into this new fortification, take down these walls, cover it with sand. They, they shipped tons of sand out to Sumter during this time and sort of set up these underground tunnels among the rubble. Sumter was not abandoned. Instead, it's garrison, uh, it will be garrisoned by infantrymen under the command of Major Stephen Elliott, and the fort will continue to serve as an anchor for the obstruction. And because of this vital role, it had to be held. As long as they could keep those obstructions in place, the Union vessels cannot enter the harbor. Because of the determined Confederate defense both at Wagner and Sumter, the northern plan began to unravel. Gilmore's great guns had demolished Fort Sumter, but the obstructions remained. As long as the Confederates were in the fort, they could, they could stop the Federals from taking up the obstructions. And Dahlgren will not take his monitors into the harbor as long as those obstructions and then those torpedoes are there. Well, Gilmore did come up with sort of an interesting way to try to crack the Confederate defenses. At the beginning of the siege, he ordered a battery constructed in the marsh between James and Morris Island. It's going to be right here. It's going to be a position known as the Marsh Battery, designed to fire projectiles into Charleston 8,000 yards away. By existing rules of warfare, Charleston is a legitimate target. It was an armed camp. There are fortifications in the city. It was home of munition plants. This is one of the batteries there at Charleston. And of course, the blockade runners. But reasons are going to run deeper. Charleston, again, is this great symbol of the Confederacy. Gilmore realized that he could bombard Charleston, and no one would really blame him whatsoever. In fact, he would probably be cheered in the North. On August 21st, the Marsh Battery was ready. An eight-inch parrot gun called the Swamp Angel, and uh, here it is here. Most uh, people give the naming of the cannon to a member of the 39th Illinois who helped build the Marsh Battery. It said, we have created a great pulpit from which a preacher will speak, a Swamp Angel. 
They will take a reading, a compass reading on the St. Michael's steeple and will, be, and will prepare themselves to fire into the city. Gilmore sends a message to General Beauregard demanding the immediate evacuation of Morris Island and Fort Sumter or Charleston would be fired on. The demand was refused and at 1.30 a.m. on August 22nd, the Swamp Angel will send its first shell into Charleston. Reactions to this will vary. Uh, in Charleston at this time was Frank Vizzatelli, the British journalist and illustrator. He was at the Charleston Hotel in downtown Charleston. He said he was in his bed reading an account of the Battle of Waterloo when he heard a whiz through the air and an explosion occur. Now the hotel was filled with speculators down there selling things at very high price to the Confederacy. And Vizzatelli quickly went out from his room into the hallway and as he describes the scene, one perspiring individual of portly dimensions was trotting to and fro with one boot on and the other in his hand and this was all the dress he could boast of. Then a shell exploded and Vizzatelli gleefully commented that the entire crowd went down on their faces, every man of them, in tobacco juice and cigar ends and clattering among the spittoons. I wish he would have drawn that picture. Instead, he, <laughs> he drew this picture. He uh, also, uh, while the bombardment was going on that night, he got together with a couple of Austrian uh, military observers, and they went to the Mills House Bar, which was this building here, and as one of the Austrian military observers reported, Vizzatelli got real drunk. And they started laying bets as to where the next shell would land. And at one point, the Austrian bet Vizzatelli a dollar that the next shell would not hit them. And said Vizzatelli was so drunk, he took the bet. And the Austrian won his dollar. Also in the city was Williams Middleton, a very prominent uh, secessionist, signer of the Ordinance of Secession. Uh, he lived in this house here on the battery, and he said, well, I, he, he knew that the shells were coming into the city, but he went to bed anyway. Then he was awakened by his neighbor, Mr. U.G., who came by to tell him that the Yanks were shelling the city. As he described the scene to his wife, Middleton wrote, as if I did not know it, can you conceive of anything more absurd? I told him that I felt very obliged for him to taking so much trouble, but that I thought all we could do was let them shell and be damned. He went on to tell his wife that there was very little danger from this shelling, uh, and he thinks it was just being done for deviling for the Yankee news market. And indeed, little is going to be accomplished. On the 36th round, the Swamp Angel will explode, uh, and do Gilmore himself will not replace the battery, uh, the cannon in the battery during the Siege of Wagner. In fact, uh, Gilmore himself sort of sums it up as a great experiment in long-range bombardments. Charleston will be shelled throughout the war. All of the shelling of Charleston will result in five deaths for the next something like 500 days. Throughout the siege, the Confederates used only their most reliable troops out at Battery Wagner. Most of the men and officers will be South Carolinians. The Confederates counted on high morale to counteract the difficult circumstances. Typical of the Confederate spirit of Wagner was Colonel Lawrence Kitt's reply on August 3rd when Beauregard asked him during a heavy bombardment, can you hold on? Kitt replied, send some more limes, rum, and sugar, and a little water will hold for another day. The Federals, on the other hand, were stuck on Morris Island for the duration. It was not a very pleasant place. 
The only relaxant the man had was surf bathing, and these are actual pictures of the camps on Morris Island. Uh, the camps were located within a few hundred yards of the beach. The men could go down to the beach at night. Uh, the breeze off the ocean gave them some relief, but the camps, as you can see, were uncomfortable, crowded, tents were useless. They had to build platforms and put the tents on top of the platforms. Uh, temperatures were now ranging well over 100 degrees. The slightest breeze, though comforting, would whip up the sand, which the soldiers called a Carolina snowstorm. The sand affected everything, uh, men's clothing, food, equipment. Fleas were a nuisance, and the island was infested with rats. On occasion, large crabs would crawl inside the men's blankets. And to everyone's misery, one day a plague of locusts struck Morris Island. As a man of the 85th Pennsylvania wrote, I think this is the meanest place I was ever in. Army hospitals tended to the soldiers as well as the Sanitary Commission. The also you had out on the island was Clara Barton, uh, who wrote this about being out there on Morris Island. She said the soldiers ate salt junk, old beef of, hard, of such hardness and saltiness as you never dreamed of lean bacon and hard crackers, both buggy and wormy. There was not a potato or other cookery vegetable on this island for weeks. I sent General Terry one day on hearing he was sick a dish of stewed dried peas and half a loaf of soft bread, which had been sent to me from Hilton Head. And he was so grateful that he came as soon as he could walk about to thank me for them. General Gilmore sent his waiter to me with a cracked teacup to know if I could let him have a little white sugar. He was dangerously ill and could take no nourishment if he had it. Uh, Barton, Gilmore, Terry, Dahlgren, and others, who have been thousands of men, will become quite sick on Morris Island. Uh, Clara Barton will be sent back to Hilton Head for about a week in August, but she will return back to Morris Island. Monotony, the siege going on, physical mental condition of the men are collapsing. Uh, eventually, the chief medical officer reported that if you don't capture Wagner soon, you should attack it because you will save more lives by attacking it than letting the men die from disease. Now, throughout the campaign, the Navy continued to assist the Army in its operations against uh, Wagner. They'll fire over 8,000 rounds at the Confederate works. The most effective vessel was the New Ironsides. Uh, she was a frigate ironsided vessel. She could uh, fire 2,500 pounds of metal in one broadside. So she was described as the personification of ugliness. She was in a very effective ship, and this is actually the new Ironsides here in action. The monitors also turned in good service. Uh, though they're very miserable vessels to serve upon, only the sailors serving in the turret or the pilot house uh, had the opportunity to breathe fresh air. Those below deck served in an environment that was so dark, as the, was as dark as the blackest night and only had lanterns uh, for light. They had no idea what was going on. They could hear shells screeching above them. When in action, the men and officers below deck would strip off everything except pants as they passed powder, shot, and shell from the magazine to the turret. The ventilators were supposed to clear the interior of the monitors of smoke. They served as conduits and actually sucked as the smoke back down into uh, the interior of these vessels. The officer on the Weehawken said that during an engagement, the air is so thick in a few hours you can cut it. 
Uh, it's miserable ships. They're only about eight inches above the water line. As I mentioned, they're dark. They're always wet. The men are always sick. Uh, one officer on one of the vessels said that he always got a little extra nourishment when he ate his meals. He said you could always see the large roaches in your food, so you could pick them out. You couldn't see the smaller ones, and estimated when he wrote his wife that he ate probably 40 small roaches at each meal. Inside these vessels, it would get up to 160 degrees in the engine rooms. Uh, one of the engineering officers, when he appeared on deck without his full uniform on, was reprimanded by the officer of the deck and he replied to the officer of the deck that we don't wear uniforms in hell. The Navy is going to have suffer problems. Men are going to come down with scurvy. They're going to have to use a lot of freedmen enlisted from the uh, freed slaves in the Port Royal area. The Navy has been integrated since the 1790s, and there are a number of black sailors serving on board the vessels. The Confederates, uh, their Navy isn't going to do a lot. They will help cover the movement of troops back and forth to Morris Island. Uh, Beauregard is going to mount torpedoes on the bows of almost every vessel he can lay his hands on, including some of the ironclads. And yes, those of you who have always wondered, these little look like guard shacks here, those are outhouses on the side of the ironclad. They will put uh, torpedoes on bows of blockade runners, and of course the submarine Hudley will arrive in Charleston during this campaign, but will not see any service during this campaign. The Federals will continuously bombard Wagner. These monitors could literally skip these huge balls, their shells, off the water, up in the air, down inside of Wagner. No place was safe inside of Wagner. One of the engineers at Wagner, John Wampler, will think he's in a safe spot behind the parapet. He will write, he begin a letter to his family. He will write, my dear wife and child, when a shell bounds over and kills him. In another action against ironclads, Captain Robert Pringle continued to operate one of his guns in Wagner against the ironclads. You could literally see these balls coming at you as they came out of the monitor turret, hit the water, skip along. And one of these skips hit a school of fish and threw a mullet up to Pringle. He picked it up, thanked the Yankees for giving him his breakfast, but unfortunately he will be killed shortly after this by an explosion of a shell. While the soldiers and sailors were suffering, the relationship between Dahlgren and Gilmore begins to fall apart, but they still continue on with this long, laborious, tough campaign. Morris Island's almost turning into a World War I battlefield. Uh, they will use searchlights, landmines, sharpshooters play an important role. Confederates had these Whitworth sharpshooter rifles out there. You could always tell who was using them. The recoil would give you a black eye. Also on Morris Island was a forerunner of a machine gun, the Requa Bellinghurst Battery, which again, men from Illinois will use some of these guns uh, in the siege lines on Morris Island. The largest cannon used by the Federal Army will be placed on Morris Island. A 10-inch Parrot rifle weighs 26,000 pounds, fired a 300-pound shot, said the whole island shook when it fired. Also a very durable cannon, uh, a shell exploded, blew off 18 inches of the barrel. They just filed it down, kept on firing, didn't affect the gun whatsoever. As one of its uh, crew commented, the American Eagle is a fine bird, but it cannot beat the 10-inch parrot. <laughs> Under the cover of their artillery, the Requa batteries, the Federals moved in closer, and they got closer to Wagner, and they started running into landmines. 
these landmines would explode as the sappers were working in the sand, slowing down their work. On one occasion, a black soldier is going to hit one. It's going to throw him up in the air, rip his clothes off, and he'll land down in front of the trench lines on top of a what they used for fuses was just a, a board. And if you stepped on that board, that would set off the torpedo. This is a sketch done by a uh, reporter for Harper's Weekly where he claimed that they were tying black soldiers, dead black soldiers, to these uh, boards in order to, as booby traps. Wasn't true, and it so enraged Gilmore that this got released. And Gilmore arrested all the uh, reporters on Morris Island, sent them back to Hilton Head. He's quite happy to get rid of them. By early September, the Union siege lines had reached Wagner's moat, and Gilmore begins to prepare for the final attack. On September 5th, the bombardment will open. It will subdue Wagner's garrison so much that they'll be able to even get closer to Wagner's moat. Uh, the sappers, as they near that, uh, run into one slight problem, which they found very distasteful as they begin cutting these last back and forth zigzags. They're digging through the mass graves of their comrades. By now, the dangers of the sappers are really just short-falling Union shells, so they keep an American flag at the head of the sap. The bombardment's causing havoc inside Wagner. Uh, the men can't mount uh, the parapet. The sharpshooters are just holding up their weapons, not even aiming and firing over at the enemy. They just can't even expose any of their uh, bodies to the enemy fire. Orders are going to be uh, finally sent out to the Confederate commander, Lawrence Kitt, again, I'm sorry, William Kitt is Lawrence, I don't know why I have William there, Lawrence Kitt, uh, saying it's time to leave. They, Colonel Harris comes out, the engineer says, if we don't get these men out of here, they'll be overrun, they'll be sacrificed. Beauregard sends orders to Kitt to evacuate, on, and on the evening of September 6th, in the midst of a bombardment, with Union soldiers literally only yards away, the Confederates will evacuate Wagner and Morris Island. And at dawn the next morning, September 7th, the evacuated Confederates could look across and see Wagner, and as Colonel Harris wrote, the next morning to our chagrin could be observed a flag of a Massachusetts regiment planted up on the ramparts of the glorious Battery Wagner. Even so, the Southerners had a lot to be proud of. Only three of their boats, about 50 men, were captured by the Union forces. It was an evacuation carried out under the very noses of the Federals. Though the Northerners were disappointed in not capturing the garrison, uh, they were happy to have Wagner. These are actually men of the 54th inside Wagner by the entranceway to the bombproof of Wagner. Now, upon the fall of Wagner, Gilmore and Dahlgren will try one last chance to take Sumter combined operation to send small boat forces to Fort Sumter. Gilmore and Dahlgren are barely talking to each other at this point in the campaign. Gilmore tells the Army, which comes out from the swamp pad, from the marsh battery, that if the Navy lands first, don't even try to land. The Navy will land first. Sailors and Marines will land on Fort Sumter. They will be spotted. The attack will be a disaster of about 400 sailors and marines who do land, uh, only about 100 get away. Stephen Elliott reports to his sister that they captured almost 200 men, two to 300 men, and not a single Confederate soldier was hurt. After the attack, uh, this botched, botched attack on Sumter, the siege basically is over. The great guns go silent. Battery Wagner will be rebuilt into a fort with its guns trained on Fort Sumter and James Island. 
While the fighting between the Yankees and the rebels die down, the conflict between Gilmore and Dahlgren continue. Gilmore claims he's done his part. He's destroyed Sumter. He's captured Morris Island. It's time for the Navy to go in. Dahlgren says, as long as those obstructions are there, I don't dare take my monitors into that harbor. Well, the immediate results, well, blockade writing will be stifled. Monitors and small boats will be out into the main ship channel, and the blockade runners will shift all their operations up to Wilmington. For over a year, no blockade runners will go in and out of Charleston. Other results, well, yes, Sumter will be reduced to rubble, but it will continue to serve as an anchor for the obstructions. And as long as those obstructions are there, the Navy is not going to go in. One legacy, well, both sides, when they name their new forts and batteries, will name them after fallen comrades. For the Federals, Battery Wagner is named Fort Strong, and there are other works named for Chatfield, Putnam, and Shaw. The South will name their batteries for men killed on Morris Island, such as Chevis, Ramsey, Simpkins, Gary, Tatum, Merriam, Wampler, Pringle, Bee, and others. These memorials hit close to home because a lot of these individuals, like Lieutenant B here, are from Charleston. For the rest of the war, there will never again be a major operation against Charleston. There will be some sharp engagement on James and nearby John Island, but the city itself will never be threatened. The North continued its bombardment. More guns will be arrayed against Sumter and the city. Even the Marsh Battery will be given new guns to fire on James Island and Charleston. Life for the soldiers on Morris Island will improve. Uh, a lot of the men will be sent away. They even will have some bands out on Morris Island. For the rest of the war, Morris Island will be used as a post from which bombardments and raids could be launched, but no great operations undertaken. And in February of 1865, it will be the movement of Sh Sherman's forces from Savannah into the interior of South Carolina that will force the evacuation of Charleston. And the men on Morris Island will be among the first to go out into the harbor, to get to Fort Sumter, to get to Charleston, in a sense, you might say, finally completing that campaign they had started in the summer of 1863. After the war, Morris Island was abandoned by the military. In 1876, the current lighthouse was built. But the main ship channel coming into Charleston will be moved. And the importance of Morris Island and this lighthouse will disappear and Morris Island will begin to erode. I hope you can come down and visit Morris Island. Love to take you out there. There are still a few dangers if you go out there uh, today, but I can't show you too much. This is the, the border, the beach line at the time of the Civil War. This is where the lighthouse, right here. This is the beach line today. So the lighthouse that once stood on high ground now stands alone in the ocean. So we best remember, I think, the campaign for Morris Island and Battery Wagner by those who fought there. I think the siege can be summed up best by the comments of two of its participants. As one Confederate cavalryman who served as a courier on the island remarked, I have heard the preachers talk about hell, a great big hole full of fire and brimstone where a bad fellow was dropped in. And I will use to say that it allowed to worry me at times. But gentlemen, hell can't be any worse than Battery Wagner. I have got out of that, and the other place ain't going to worry me no more. Clara Barton put it a little differently. She wrote, we have captured one fort, Greg, and one charnel house, Wagner. 
and we have built one cemetery, Morris Island. The thousand little sand hills and the pale moonlight are a thousand headstones, and the restless ocean waves that roll and break up on the whitened beach sing an eternal requiem to the toil-worn gallant dead who sleep beside. Thank you. Time for some questions. With the constant ability to bombard Charleston, why did it burn? The uh, question is, uh, constant ability to bombard Charleston, why did it burn? It burned by accident in 1862. Uh, fire started in a refugee camp along East Bay, spread throughout the city, and all those photographs you see of all the ruins in Charleston, that came from that fire. It destroyed a huge area of Charleston. The bombardment itself caused some fires, but no great fires at all. What it did more was to force the people to flee from their homes, and then their, form, their, their homes for about two years were not lived in, and Confederate soldiers went into the houses and looted them and took a lot of the metal work away out of the, out of the houses that they could sell to the Confederate Ordnance Department in Charleston to be reworked into cannon shells and such. I'm curious about the decision to attack Fort Sumter. Was it political and military? And did any of the men who drafted the secession papers participate in the decision? The 1861 attack or the... I'm sorry. The first assault, the question is, uh, why the assault on, Charles, on Fort Sumter in 1861? Uh, yes, a number of those who signed the ordinance of secession were there uh, and were part of it, uh, either in the military or in Charleston and such. Charleston was the hotbed, for, and actually the coast was the hotbed for secession area. Uh, it was done primarily because the Confederacy knew that a relief squadron was coming and they couldn't allow Charleston to be bottled up by a union or a foreign power to control Sumter and control the shipment. And it doesn't look good for a new nation if their major port, on, and it was, it was their major port uh, on the eastern coast to be controlled by a foreign nation. So they, Davis was given the choice of allowing this expedition to relief, send in more supplies and equipment to Fort Sumter, or to try to capture Sumter before this expedition arrives. And he chose to give Beauregard orders to attack. And that's basically what happened. Benefit of hindsight, what would what, have been the better strategy for the Union to take uh, Charleston? <laughs> In hindsight, the better strategy for the Federals to take Charleston, I think the, uh, a couple of things, if they would have, they didn't realize how effective that new Ironsides was until late in the siege. If they would have known how effective that new Ironsides as a artillery, a floating battery basically was, they could have used her to have pinned down Wagner in the first attack and the men could have gotten into Wagner before the Confederates could have even gotten out of their bomb proof. They realized that toward the end of the, of the uh, siege, but not at the beginning. They probably just didn't have enough men. Uh, the original plan calls for landing not only in Morris Island, but at movements against uh, Mount Pleasant as well. Uh, just a very difficult harbor to move against. But as long as those torpedoes are there, uh, no one wanted to go down in history as being the first to lose a monitor that might fall into the hands of the Confederates. So they really needed to capture either Fort Sumter or Fort Moultrie to get into the uh, harbor. They didn't have enough men to go around. They just never did. They only had about, throughout the war, at best, 
10,000 men they could put into that campaign. Okay, one more question. Do we have a total casualty count? Ah, glad, glad you asked that. Let's see. As a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> For the entire campaign, uh, buy my book and it has it right in the back. <laughs> I have a lot of appendix in here. Hang on a second. Somebody might be able to find it quicker than I can. There we go. Uh, total ca casualties for the entire campaign, uh, the Federals 2,318, the Confederates 1,022. Well, Stephen, thank you so okay. much All right. for uh, speaking here tonight. <laughs> and we will be making a uh, contribution in Steve's honor to the South Carolina Battlefield Trust. Is that right? Battleground. Or Battleground Trust. <laughs> okay. Uh, the speaker at the next meeting is going to be Jim Ogden from uh, Chickamauga National Military Park. Have a good evening.